Hey, this is Matthew. Just a warning before we get started. This podcast talks about sexual harassment, sexual assault, and other topics that may not be suitable for all audiences. Please be advised. Okay, here's the show. Back in the summer of 2017, I began to work on a new songwriting project. It was the first time in a while that I had done a creative project. So my first move was to build a playlist on Spotify. You know, to get the creative juices flowing. The playlist was filled with some great songs. Music from The Staves. Steady, steady, steady. You steady touch our love so much. Noah Gunderson. Sufjan Stevens. I can see a lot of life in you. I can see a lot of bright in you. And I think the dress looks nice on you. I can see a lot of life in you. I could go on for days. But one of the artists I had on there that gave me perhaps the most inspiration was Ryan Adams. In the early 2000s, the man was prolific. His music was all over television. He had done an episode of Crossroads with Elton John, for God's sake. And his vibe was exactly what I was searching for musically. I released my five-song EP in August of 2017, and I was really proud of the final product. In February of 2019, an article came out in the New York Times with the headline, Ryan Adams dangled success. Women say they paid the price. The piece was alarming, to say the least. Anyone who knew Adams' musical career at all knew that he was not necessarily a nice guy. But the authors of the New York Times piece went much further than that. They talked about an unsettling correspondence between Adams and a girl who was 14 years old at the time. I won't go into too great of detail on here, but I'll link to the New York Times piece in the show notes. Between this troubling relationship, his abusive relationship with singer-songwriter Phoebe Bridgers, and a few more details we learned about his marriage with actress and singer Mandy Moore, a pattern certainly emerges. I knew after this news came out that my opinions of Ryan Adams the person would be changed forever. And I also knew that I would feel very conflicted listening to his music again. But what about my own creative endeavors? I knew how heavy his influence was on my own playing style, my own songwriting. Was my art tainted by the trespasses of my influences? I'm Matthew Moore, and this is The Art and the Artist. Before we can really dive into where we stand right now with separating the art from the artist, I want to go back in time. This episode is titled The Past, and so we're going to spend our time looking at how we handled the separation of the two entities from a historical lens. And to help me do that, 
I have Dr. Alan Doyle. My name is Alan Doyle. Um, I'm a visiting uh, professor of art history at the School of Art at the University of Arkansas. Um, my expertise is in modern art, which is what I did my PhD in, and I teach survey classes. So I teach very broad courses that kind of try to reiterate and teach the kind of grand narrative of art history from the Renaissance to the present. I asked him, what was it about art and art history that led you to where you are now? I wanted to be an intellectual. I wanted because I thought intellectuals were cool. <laughs> you know, I, I wanted to think about the history of ideas because I kind of fundamentally believed that they would help you understand the world. And um, I think when you don't fit in, you want to kind of understand why that is. Art became a kind of compensatory space where you could carve out this universe for yourself. One of the things that stuck out the most to me when interviewing Dr. Doyle was this terminology he uses, this idea of people and objects. And this is actually an important divide because it is very easy to confuse people and objects. We treat people like objects. Um, unfortunately, very often. Um, but we also sometimes revert to a kind of animism where we treat objects like people. And we put them on trial th using the same criteria that we would for a person. And it's just important to remember that objects themselves don't mean anything. <laughs> we make them meaningful in the present for us. And this idea hit me like a ton of bricks. We make objects meaningful in the present for us. So let's go back. When we think about art history, Dr. Doyle talks about how the way we view art is very different from how we once viewed it. At the moment that we're in right now, I would say it's actually a little bit reversed. In other words, that we look at the art of the past very, very much through the lens of the present. There's a kind of presentism going on at this moment. The past isn't really the past that we want it to be. We have to kind of try to respect it and recover it. Otherwise, it just becomes this kind of mirror where we gaze at ourselves in it and doesn't really get us very far. So can you give me an example of an artist from the past we could talk about concretely? For me, an early an important artist was actually an American artist, although I usually study uh, uh, European art, but the American artist Thomas Aikens, um, who was a great realist painter of the 19th century, and actually in many ways a controversial figure for uh, ways that actually kind of speak to the Me Too movement at the moment. Thomas Aikens was a professor at the Pennsylvania Academy in the 1870s, eventually becoming the director in 1882. He was also a painter and photographer. As part of his curriculum, he took photographs of students nude, both male and female, and his students took photographs of him nude as well. And when I saw those photographs, they were kind of revelation because they were in some ways much more powerful than his oil paintings that he's very famous for. But these photographs also reveal that he was putting female students in a position where uh, they could be judged. When a female student asked about the movement of the pelvis, Aikens invited her to his studio where he undressed and, quote, gave her the explanation as I could not have done by words only. These problematic power dynamics made the relationship between professor and student even more complex. But in a way, he was kind of, at one point, kind of taken up as a martyr for art because he was literally fired because he did this very iconoclastic thing. So uh, he's one figure who actually raises some of these issues about what do we do with his biography and his story because you can teach Aikens and in most textbooks, he is still taught today 
um, uh, without ever engaging these issues because they're not really necessarily present in the oil paintings that he's best known for. So I'm assuming we know the answer to this, but just to be clear, a professor today should not take nude photographs with a student, right? Um, no, you, you as a university, as a junior university professor, I can tell you right now, it would not go over well if I had nude photo sessions with uh, studio students. If I was a studio professor, no, this would this would be scandalous and a totally inappropriate and it was kind of inappropriate at the time um but in um it 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 speaks to i think the question of power and pedagogy and and the fact that we are hopefully becoming more transparent and self-aware about how the relationship between masters and i'm using scare quotes uh and students because these are the actual terms that are usually are were certainly used in the 19th century um uh, are not equal and uh, uh, those are very fraught, complicated relationships. Hi, this is Mark from Highlands Ranch, Colorado. Hi, my name is Corey. Hi, my name is Cole. And um, one of the celebrity scandals that really uh, shocked me and upset me was when it came out that Amir Vaughn from the group Brockhampton. One of my big heroes growing up, and I had a lot of guitar heroes, was Ted Nugent. And I have really struggled post Finding Neverland to enjoy Michael Jackson's music. I would love to listen to Stranglehold if I was having a bad day and it would really get me psyched for the day. Uh, the sexual misconduct allegations came out against him and he was kicked out of Brockhampton because I thought that Brockhampton was a really solid group and I thought they were going to be a really important voice in modern hip-hop music. Hearing the accounts of the boys, their families, really shook me. Um, but yet Michael Jackson had such a special gift and his music was so influential in my life. And uh, at the time of uh, Barack Obama's first uh, campaign, I became aware of his politics, and uh, I never could since then separate the art from the artist. And um, I was just really looking forward to seeing what that guy was going to do in the future, because I really enjoyed the role that he played in the group. But after the uh, allegations of sexual misconduct came out, it was hard to support him and enjoy anything that he put out because of the knowledge that I had of what he had done in the past. Uh, his... his view on guns and uh, what he was saying about Barack Obama just really disturbed me. And I never could listen to him again without thinking about that. That I've really struggled um, on whether or not I could just delete them from my music library, delete the songs from my music library. While I can sit there and think, okay, what was he thinking when he wrote those songs? I just want to be able to enjoy them without guilt. And I think I can. So my name is David Andre. I'm assistant professor of art here at the School of Art inside the University of Arkansas in Fayetteville. Uh, my primary practice is in painting, um, but my professional practice spans sculpture and sound as a kind of extension of that practice. So a, a recent project that I've been developing that utilizes sound is a project I call my Land Harps. Um, so that came out of a drawing and painting idea 
just like the simple geometric line against something that was much more atmospheric. Really simple idea of that juxtaposition. And I became interested in making that thing tangible. So I was stretching string in the landscape and I thought it looked a lot like an instrument. So I kind of combined my knowledge of instrument building with that hunch and came up with a instrument that allows me to tension piano wire in the landscape. So the wires are tensioned from above to below moving water, and then the water passes by the strings and vibrates it like a violin bow. What you're hearing right now is a field recording of David Andre's Land Harp. The idea of this thing really fascinated me, and I'm grateful he allowed me to use this for the episode. I mean, I think a lot of things, as as many things do for people, just originated from something that they enjoyed doing. You know, so ever since I can remember, I've always just enjoyed drawing. I've also enjoyed music, sound. Um, so those have been kind of parallel tracks that I just kind of didn't stop doing. You know, I think a lot of people describe a certain point in their life where you kind of stopped drawing, you stopped doodling, and it kind of like you know, went away. But I think most people, like, there is that impulse to just want to, like, make marks and scribble and that kind of energy um, is something that I think I just kept doing, right? So just kind of perpetuated, got kind of more committed to it, a little more serious about it, and kind of developed it into what I'm doing today. I remember a certain point where I had to decide between a particular math class or do I kind of fill art electives? And that felt like a really important moment. It was the first time in my life where I felt like I was making a decision about like one door potentially opening, another door potentially shutting. Um, at that time, I was really interested in potentially pursuing architecture or art, you know, and those two paths were very different educationally. They were very different in terms of what opportunities I would have. I felt an immense amount of pressure in thinking about that decision between the two. I ended up choosing to fill my course load with art. I ended up taking like all of the art classes that were provided in my high school twice. Um, so I definitely doubled down on my decision. But I do remember that as a really important moment, like filling out that, you know, like whatever sign up sheet for classes as being a really pivotal moment. I remember meeting with some architects just to like, kind of see what what are you doing? What's that kind of career path like? What do you have any regrets? Do you have anything that you're excited about? We know what 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 is it actually like to be a practicing architect? And a lot of the people that I talk to, like a lot of their projects are pushed way out. They're these really long term, really huge things that you invest a lot of time in and then maybe you see it like three, five, ten years down the road in terms of the actual output of your of your labor, right? And I, I think that was an important kind of insight that I was given that made me choose the path that I wanted to in art, in that it was something that was easier to like pivot, move quicker, iterate faster. Um, and it was a little bit more wide open in terms of what I could personally do, where I could go. I kind of liked the idea that it was this kind of unsolvable problem. Was there a moment for you where you had an artist who made you think twice about their art after news came out about them? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, from my own, from my own life experience, um, I would often visit the Minneapolis Institute of Art and kind of view their painting collection. And there was one particular piece that 
was quite fond of growing up um, by Larry Rivers. There's a painting called The Studio. In fact, I can like pull it up here so you can kind of yeah. see what I'm talking about. Yeah. David begins to show me this really magnificent painting that is enormous in size. It's 82 and a half inches by 193 and a half inches. That's almost seven feet tall and 14 feet wide. What really excited me about the painting was that it was this painting of kind of studio activity. So you see subjects, primarily figures. Um, there's also some animals that are in the scene along with other studio furniture. And everything appears to be in flux. Characters are moving. You see different positions of feet. You see figures, limbs moving, time shifting in the painting. And that was really formative for me to think about painting as this kind of time-based activity. It's not something that happens you know, like a photograph where it's at the kind of click of that shutter speed, which kind of freezes a moment, a very brief moment in time. Painting is something that takes a long time to develop, especially at the scale that we're looking at. It's a very kind of laborious thing. You're visiting over the course of a number of days to develop this thing. So there are breaks, there's changes, things actually move during the process that the painting was created and you see those different fluctuations in the paint films. It's very kind of lean painting, it's very thin, a lot of transparency, a lot of solvent in terms of creating these veils, these washes of paint that are almost watercolor-like. Um, but again, it's that kind of shifting of form that was really exciting to me. Now, I'll be the first to tell you that I'm certainly not an art critic, but even me, when I look at this painting, I can tell that it's something really special. This work feels almost like a, a time-lapse video camera was left in the room. And you get to see all aspects of what's happening, high and low, beginning and end, and everything in between. So then thinking about connecting to what you're asking me about, like how has my perspective shifted based on kind of knowing artists' actions. You know, we see a number of nude figures in the painting, um, whether it's a large, there's a large female figure that's kind of on the left-hand side, and then there is a younger male form flanking the, the figure to the right. And there are lots of different ways that you could view the kind of nude in painting, right? It could be kind of a beautiful celebration of form. It could be sexual in nature. And I think that now understanding some of the personal actions on Larry Rivers' part has really shifted the way that I look at these figures now, knowing the accusations that his own daughter has placed on him. Back in 2010, an article came out from the New York Times following the death of Larry Rivers. New York University had acquired the archive of his work, published and unpublished. This collection included letters, paperwork, and photographs. But it also contained a very specific film that Rivers took. There were a number of videos that the artist was making, um, but there were a number of them that used his own children. And in these videos, the underage children at the time, they're, they're nude, they're asked to like describe like their budding sexuality, like the changes that their body is going through. And... The daughter has cited that as being a really detrimental experience to her own mental health, her own well-being. It's contributed to her own um, eating disorders. 
Um, so it's it's been incredibly affecting for her own life, you know, the way that she feels taken advantage of. She felt violated. In fact, in the article, his daughter Emma is quoted as saying, it wrecked a lot of my life, actually. She even requested that the university destroy the tapes. NYU has pledged to keep the film from being seen by anyone during the two daughters' lifetime. And that really shifts the way that I think about this painting. Like now knowing that there was this kind of, you know, pretty almost like really taking advantage of the people around him and really putting people in uncomfortable positions. It really changes a painting of a nude underage boy um, from being something that maybe you could think about as a kind of celebration of the human form into something that feels much more predatory, uh, much more detrimental, much more uh, absurd. And it's, it's hard for me to appreciate the painting in the same way once I get the narrative of at least the, the kind of daughter's point of view in that experience. I reached out to the Minneapolis Institute of Art to ask about the painting that David talks about here, the studio, and that conversation will be in our episode next week. There's one last historical figure that I want to talk about with the help of Dr. Doyle again. But perhaps one of the kind of archetypal cases in which these kinds of questions apply, especially in my field, uh, 19th century French art in particular, over the last 30 years, that kind of comes up over and over again is Gauguin. Paul Gauguin was a stockbroker who lost his job during a market crash. So he left his wife and family to fend for themselves to pursue painting full time. He traveled the countryside with Van Gogh to paint and then left to travel the South Seas, now known as French Polynesia. And when he was there, had a relationship uh, with uh, a partner who is, as far as we can tell, about 13 years old, a female partner. Some of his most famous work was created during this time in Tahiti, during which he met and married underage girls and even fathered children with them. And yet, despite all of Gauguin's troubling behaviors, ones that would certainly rule him out of the canon if it were to happen today, some historians are able to see through the troubling attributes and find meaning in his work. Several seminal pieces of historical art criticism has been done, specifically through a feminist lens on the work of Gauguin. And they all try to answer a simple question. What do we do with Gauguin? (laughs) Now, as an art historian, I can tell you it is incredibly difficult to tell the story of modern painting in the transition from late 19th century France to 20th century uh, Europe and eventually to America without engaging Gauguin. His influence is enormous and undeniable on everything that happens after him. Nevertheless, uh, when I teach Gauguin in the classroom, I, of course, give those essays or teach from those essays um, and need to, to acknowledge these issues. And off, a couple of times I've had students come up to me afterwards and say, so essentially, if this guy is such a jerk, why are we still talking about him? And this is an absolutely, you know, important question. Um, the easy response is so that we can have a conversation about it, you know, um, and that isn't necessarily the wrong response, but I mean, it, it, it isn't perhaps entirely sufficient. Why I bring him up is because he really speaks to precisely this issue of not only what the artist did at the time, what was acceptable at the time, where he did it as a colonial you know, white guy in uh, uh, Tahiti, eventually in the South Seas, but also the complexity of all that, because it's very easy to dismiss it. But there has now actually just recently been kind of a second wave of scholarship that has gone back 
and thought about him a little bit more and specifically and done a bit more digging. And although his attitudes were very in keeping with his time and, and sometimes utterly despicable, there's no question, he also said some very kind of powerful, almost proto-feminist statements. And in fact, his aunt was a kind of radical early feminist, and he read her stuff and actually quotes some of her texts in his journals. And there's a way of reading his paintings and his texts. He did both. He was a writer and a printmaker and a painter and a sculptor in a way that actually kind of offers a more, shall we say, complicated critique of patriarchal culture at the exact same moment that he's also kind of reiterating it. How complicated is that? If you were to just read his biography, straight white guy with lots of money, leaves his family and kids to go be a borderline colonialist with a teenage wife, how the hell do you take the guy's work seriously? And yet we see how multidimensional he was. The man had a lot going on in his head. And over a hundred years after his death, we're still trying to process all of these things. You know, artists uh, or historical figures don't come along with black cowboy hats and white cowboy hats, right? There are, not to say just shades of gray, but there are complexities that are worth recovering precisely because they help us, give us pause and try to understand the past in all its complexity, which helps us maybe understand the present in that complexity as well. There is a kind of understanding that the artist as such is being generated by the narrative that in which they are appearing. This is, again, if this were easy, then life would be boring. <laughs> I mean, this is why I have a job and, and, you know, we're having this conversation. It's about the evolution of kind of a living culture. From Dr. Doyle's perspective, the art and the artist, or the person and the object, are intrinsically separate. And they have to be. There is still, I think, a way that one can think carefully, uh, again, to take the time to really do the work and to think carefully about the relationship between artists and their products. So the person who signs it, or who is maybe we could just say, to really push this to an extreme, who happened to be in the studio the day that it got made, <laughs> right? They, in a kind of, we really push this very far, you could say that they actually have a pretty tangential relationship to that object. Because again, once it leaves the studio, it goes out into the world, it circulates, and they may try to control the narrative, but it might be taken to mean and resonate in ways that they don't intend and that they have very little to do with. This can seem impossible to fathom today. Can you imagine a world where the person who authors a book or who writes a song doesn't get to be the one who chooses what meaning their work does and doesn't have? That is why art history is so important. What the artist has to say about it can be really useful and productive to know and to think about, but doesn't get priority. So what I would argue is, is that history in a way, and thinking about some of these, because every, virtually every artist of consequence is problematic in some regard. So if you start digging, you're never going to find, you know, uh, uh, the, the one, the artist who is absolutely pure or perfect or ideal in every way. You are always going, if you look into people's complicated lives, especially people from, uh, from the past, 
uh, you are going to find objectionable stuff about your heroes. Um, but you still need heroes. After this conversation, I felt like I left with a lot more questions than answers. But maybe that's the point. I never thought that, the, again, the point of art was to give us answers. I thought it was to give us interesting questions um, that make us think about our lives and our experience differently. So it strikes me that we're doing exactly what we're supposed to be doing. The question just is really, uh, you know, can we ever imagine a point where we wouldn't want to be asking these questions again? I doubt it. Next week, the present.